Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can meet. We thank you for the wonderful blessings you give us day by day. Most of all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. and his name we pray. Amen. Friends, the passage that was just read to us is a very significant passage. It's one which, in a sense, we can't ignore. It's really a key for thinking about our Christian lives. Because as the passage begins, there is a warning that reminds us that as Christians, we either go forward or we fall back. We either run the race or drift away. There's no middle ground. There's always only two ways to live when it comes to God. But that warning flows in to the significant contrast that the writer wants to bring everybody to a point of understanding in the end, where he contrasts the shadow of the old covenant with the eternal reality of the new. But let's just review again why the author puts pen to paper. It really comes out of the author's pastoral heart. That's what's driving him to write to his Christian friends. Because he wants them to stop giving in to the temptation, the temptation to move away from wholehearted commitment to Christian life and faith and practice. His Jewish friends were really, in a sense, seemingly loosening their grip on Christ and being tempted to drift back into the shadow of Judaism and therefore relying on law and animal sacrifices for salvation rather than on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the author is in the whole book seeking to encourage his Jewish friends to persevere to the end, to hang on to Christ irrespective of the trials and burdens of life. Very tempting to try and hide in Judaism when it's a safer place to be in the midst of persecution. So he writes them and he has two prongs to how he's trying to encourage them. One is to warn them about the danger of rejecting Christ and the other to urge them to hold on to Christ, the Son of God, the one who is God's final revelation, the one who shed blood cleanses us from sin and provides an eternal and certain hope. Well, let's come to the passage then. Verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. What the author's doing at this point is, is helping us to address our personal attitude towards godly living. He's saying that every Christian should be pursuing peace and holiness, and pursuing it with an intensity and an urgency. That's the, really, that's the sense of make every effort. We need to do it in, with intensity and urgency. Now when he talks about peace here, it's really the, the sense of objective reality won through Christ's sacrificial death. In other words, the saving gift, the, the sign of the presence of the new age, the perfection to come in heaven. While holiness, of course, is secured for us through Christ's once and for all death upon the cross. Since Christ has cleansed our consciences, we're enabled to approach God, as chapter 10 highlighted. And as chapter 9 highlighted, because of that, 
because of that cleansing, we can serve the Lord. And as well, when we saw last week, we saw that the ultimate result of God's disciplining his children is to share in his holiness, in God's holy character, as verse 10 of chapter 12 highlighted. That's why disciplinary suffering is significant in the development of our holiness. So how then do we pursue gifts God's already given us? By working out peace and holiness in our everyday lives. We have to take godliness very seriously as Christians. And of course one big way which the author highlights as well is maintaining our harmony within the Christian community. And in chapter 13, the author will encourage and highlight some of those ways to be pursuing peace and holiness, to be maintaining harmony. And so he speaks of brotherly love. That is, the love that should be existing amongst us is the love that we think of in terms of families, or hospitality, or faithfulness in marriage, or the responsibilities to leaders who are caring for our souls. See, another way of thinking about church is to see it as an outpost of heaven. And it should dynamically reflect the peace marking God's rule. And so the church should be reflecting a practical holiness of life, a holiness expressed in wholehearted commitment to Christ, leading us to sacrificial service and, of course, obedience to his will. And the pursuit of holiness is so important, the author says, that without it, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will experience eternal life, in other words. Now, the author here is, in a sense, picking up things from the past, from Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But of course Jesus is just reflecting what's running through the Old Testament as well. So for example in Psalm 24 we read, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. And as you read through the whole of Hebrews, you actually see a close interconnectedness between purity and holiness through being pure and holy. See, for those who have been made holy are those who have been purified by Christ. That is picked up in chapter 1, chapter 9, chapter 10. So all Christians should press on to their perfected holiness if they are to see God. So this pursuit is a VIP pursuit. But what comes out is that this pursuit is done with mutual responsibility for one another's spiritual welfare. And it's spotlighted in verse 15 where the author says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Friends, this is a call to watchful care. Watchful care that's addressed to all of us because the congregation as a whole will be adversely affected if any root of bitterness went unchecked or was allowed to spread. 
And you may have had experiences of seeing that happen. But we've only got to look at the Old Testament to see, obviously, cases of that. See, the people that the author is writing to are being tempted to drift back to the Old Covenant. And that's why the emphasis all the time is showing how superior Jesus is. He's superior to anything that the people may want to cling on to in their Jewish heritage. A heritage grounded in rules and sacrifices and human mediators. But it is a heritage, as God planted, pointing forward to the promised Messiah, to Jesus. The one who would fulfil every aspect of that heritage. And we've seen it in the course of Hebrews that Jesus is the perfect high priest. He is the one who is the perfect sacrifice. He's the one who has brought in a priesthood that is far superior to the old, the one who brings in the new covenant. But as the author talks about these things, he's again drawing us back to the Old Testament with the very words he uses. Takes us back to places like Deuteronomy 29, for example. Israel is warned there about worshipping idols and turning away from the Lord. And the way Moses talks about the response to all that is in terms of mutual responsibility, that each Israelite had a mutual responsibility for one another. That's how they were to guard against any poisonous root taking hold in their community life. So after that, he then merges into another warning based on the Old Testament. Verse 16, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. The warning urges us to guard against sexual immorality, which is a strong enough warning in and of itself, as chapter 13 picks up the whole notion of of making sure that the marriage bed is not defiled. But the language he's using also in the Old Testament is used to denote idolatry and abandoning the living God. See, Esau's behaviour certainly shows his attention to leave God out of his life. But Esau's behaviour is also called godless, that is totally worldly, the very opposite to holiness. And that's picked up in places like Leviticus 10, for example. Now remember that Esau gives up his inheritance rights as the oldest child, picked up in Genesis 25, the story is there. Now why does it all happen? Because he lets his physical overcome his spiritual, doesn't he? He lets his own hunger, his physical hunger, blur his responsibilities to God. And so he exchanges his inheritance for a single meal of lentil stew. How perverse and thoughtless can you get? Lentil stew. And in verse 17, we're reminded of how Esau could not recapture his inheritance for his remorse is ineffective. Esau's actions in the long run show how little he valued God's promises, the promised blessings that were given to Abraham, Genesis 12, which shape up the whole of the flow of biblical history and the biblical story. 
So the readers are urged to ensure that no member of the congregation becomes immoral or godless like Esau. It's a big call, isn't it? A call to persevere by trusting in God's promises. I wonder if we reflect on our own lives and our own lives in our church if we're taking that responsibility to heart. Are we taking our accountability for each other seriously? So often we want to be private about things, whereas this is a call for not being private about things, about being responsible for one another, for being accountable to one another. And that's a big call, a big challenge, isn't it? Well, all of that warning leads the author to write about two mountains. And this is a great contrast he brings in at this point to really, in one sense, sum up so much of the teaching of Hebrews that he's been writing about up to this point. But it's also a contrast that supports the call to pursue peace and holiness. While it's also a contrast that urges us to guard against turning away from the living God. And so the author contrasts two mountain meeting places. In the ancient world, mountains were seen as the place where you met with God. And he's back into the habit we saw earlier on where these two meeting places are all talked about in terms of one sentence each. So the first one, Israel assembled at Mount Sinai, Verses 18 to 21, again, just one sentence. Pictures the old covenant, the very situation that Ross read to us from Exodus. And then the new covenant, the new covenant meeting with God at Mount Zion, the heavenly city of the living God, verses 22 to 24, again, just one sentence. And the contrast is being shaped by the initial verb in verse 18 and repeated again in verse 22, to come to. But there's a significant difference in the come-tos, isn't there? Because Christians haven't come to Sinai. Rather, they've come to Mount Zion. So he draws out the contrast by sort of retelling some of that story which Ross read to us from Exodus 19. Verse 18 describes that gathering around Mount Sinai and how it impacted the Exodus generation. So we read... You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to such a voice speaking that they beg no further words be spoken to them. That's what we haven't come to. When Israel assembled around Mount Sinai, they were in for an awesome experience, one rightly striking terror into the hearts of the people. You see, God's holiness was to be safeguarded by excluding Israel from the mountain, as verse 20 highlights, because God is holy. Sinful people cannot approach God directly. And even though Moses was granted access to the mountain, he was still filled with fear and trembling, as verse 21 highlights. You see, the old covenant included strict laws and severe penalties. And according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, Israel understood the old as being a ministry of condemnation. But mercifully under God, 
the old paved the way for the new, for those same laws and penalties. Highlighted on the one hand, sin's seriousness, and on the other, the cost of forgiveness. And that cost was seen in the way the sacrificial system operated, wasn't it? Continual sacrifice. And then the Day of Atonement ceremony, where the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, which symbolised that presence of God amongst the people. Only once a year. But he'd have to sacrifice for his own sins before the sins of the people. And in the midst of that whole ceremony, we had the whole notion of the scapegoat, where hands on the goat and pushing out in the desert. So what a joy and a relief to read in verse 22. But you, that is Christians, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's an incredible contrast when you think about it. See, Christians haven't come to some sacred mount and able to be physically touched, no way. Rather, they've come to the heavenly dwelling of, of God, the true and eternal Mount Zion. And terror doesn't enter this city, for it's full of joyful celebration, as verse 22 says. It's like the picture in Revelation, isn't it? Of the heavenly Jerusalem coming down, the new creation. And God dwelling amongst his people. And as a result, there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain or tears. For the old is gone and only the new remains. And in the midst of this scene, the author says, we have unhindered access to God. Why? Because we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In Jesus' death, this new covenant has been inaugurated, the very one promised by the prophet Jeremiah. And that was picked up in chapter 9. Jeremiah had promised this with, to the exiles and now it's come to pass in Jesus. And this, unsprink, this sprinkled, this shed blood of an unblemished Jesus. Remember in the sacrificial system it had to be an unblemished lamb that was offered. And John the Baptist says to his disciples, he sees Jesus, he says, Look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as Jesus dies, he cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death because the judgment on sin is death. And as a result, we can actually serve the living God. And we can confidently draw near to the living God. Remember in chapter 10, on the basis of our possessions, let us draw near to God with full assurance of faith because our hearts have been sprinkled clean. Recall how Abel's blood cried out for justice, didn't it? That's the incident back in chapter 4 of Genesis, picked up again in Hebrews 11. But of course the blood of Jesus is powerful, speaking of forgiveness and life, because the judgment has been atoned in him. And so the contrast is highlighting once more the superiority of the new to the old. And he's saying to the, his friends that he's writing to, don't be tempted to draw back. 
Don't be tempted to move away. Don't be tempted to drift back into what has now been surpassed, what has now been fulfilled. Don't go back that way. And some of that is being highlighted too with a couple of other images that he uses here, which just pause to have a look at. First one, to the church of the firstborn in verse 23. Christians have come to church church whose members' names are permanently written in heaven. None. As Christians, we'll be in church forever. That's why you've got to enjoy it now because it's in preparation for enjoying it for eternity. We're in church now. We're gathered around Christ in heaven. That's where our true home is. Just like Paul says in Philippians, isn't it? Our true citizenship is in heaven from where we await a saviour who will come at the end. We are in church as Christians. But of course the, the way in which the author is expressing this is again drawing us back to the Old Testament using the term firstborn which of course referred to Israel, didn't it? Back in the Exodus account. So the author is spotlighting and continues to spotlight how the old is fulfilled in Jesus. Hence it's foolish to drift back to rely on what is now obsolete, the old covenant. So what a joy awaits us when we'll experience this church face to face, when we fellowship with all the firstborn children of God, all those united to Christ who, of course, is the firstborn par excellence. How wonderful, eh? How wonderful a hope. And then the author also uses the expression the spirits or souls of the righteous made perfect. It's really an expression referring to the godly who have already died. They inhabit the heavenly city, the joying the goal of their faithfulness. The saints who have been made perfect, nothing lacking in their relationship with God now. But that perfecting is once more the result of Jesus' death. Chapter 10, verse 14. For by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who have been made holy. As people accept Jesus, they come to Mount Zion and so join the company of all who have died in that same faith. See, what a marvellous contrast to highlight again the superior of the new through Jesus to the old which was pointing forward to Jesus. And as the chapter ends, he wants to encourage them to persevere by again making a warning, a warning that comes to us with all seriousness because of the amazing blessings of the new covenant. And that's why we have an even greater responsibility than Israel to listen to God's voice. Because if we ignore God's final revelation through his son, then it really just shows marked contempt for the new covenant blessings. We must listen attentively to the word of God. Ignoring it, placing us in peril. Remember how the chapter ends? For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a God of judgment. In the long run, he will not tolerate unholiness. 
So as the book comes to a close, there's so much to be pondering and reflecting upon, isn't it? The blessings of the new covenant forged by Jesus through his death. As we reflect on that, it should flood us, flood our hearts with joy and praise that's felt deep down. And as we reflect on our Christ-guaranteed security, then we're enabled to face anything that comes our way, isn't it? Not least life's unexpected trials because we know our eternal security is safe. We have it. Therefore, we can withstand anything. But the challenge continues to come to us, isn't it? The challenge is what, or perhaps better, who do we rely on? That's our daily challenge, isn't it? Who are we relying on this day? On Christ or something else? You see, just like the original readers of Hebrews, we've had many temptations that come to us that will have the effect of loosening our grip on Christ and hence a gradual drifting away like the boat that loses its mooring and just drifts out with the tide bit by bit by bit. And some of that slow drifting occurs with things like skipping daily Bible reading and prayer, so that's no longer a habit, or devaluing the importance of meeting together as Christians, or lessening our grip on the urgency of proclaiming the gospel the good news of salvation. Or alternatively, we can be thinking that people are essentially good when the Bible says the very opposite. And once we think people are essentially good, it lessens the need for Jesus' death for their sins because they're not evil in their hearts. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no exceptions. And of course we can be tempted to retreat into a religion centred on rituals and ceremonies and on physical things and then turn a deaf ear to what God's word is actually saying. So friends, there is much to challenge us from the book of Hebrews, much to challenge us about our own mutual responsibility for one another, much to say how we go forward as a Christian community. So, are we taking the teaching of Hebrews to heart, to really taking it to heart deep down? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again that you have spoken, that you are a God who speaks, that you have not left us in the dark. You've revealed to us your character and purposes, all summed up in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we just know how many times we've let that slip. But Father, we pray that you'll renew us by your spirit this morning, that we may indeed pursue peace and holiness, that we may indeed be caring for one another for our spiritual welfare, and above all, rejoice in coming to the heavenly Mount Zion the church of the firstborn. Amen.